This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much, and welcome to the program. We have a lot of show to get to this evening. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to do... I promise I'll be doing my absolute dead level best to get to all of it. I'm not sure that that's even going to be possible with everything that's going on, but we'll try. As always, since we have been doing this for a while, we're going to go ahead and start with the coronavirus update. We'll probably be pretty quick on this tonight, not dive super deep into the numbers because there is so much else going on in the world that we have to get to, including right here in the state of Alabama. So we will definitely be doing that. But as always, we're going to go ahead and start with the latest update, the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So you can see here a couple things that we need to mention. First of all, they've completely overhauled the look of the website, which honestly, from a web design standpoint, the other one was probably better just from a, a technical sense. I you know, probably shouldn't complain too much about that, but the thing that I do want you to notice here looking at this graphic, the thing that I really stuck out to me is that you look there, and that is the per capita, if you're looking on the mark or on, on the map, you'll notice that that is the per capita rate of confirmed cases of the virus. And you'll notice that Montgomery, which at one point was roughly dead even with Mobile, Montgomery County and Mobile County were about neck and neck and actually traded off uh, which one had more for a while. And the reason that I point to those two is because, of course, Montgomery County has a major city, the capital city, as does Jefferson and Madison and Mobile. And so looking at the four big cities in the state of Alabama, it was somewhat a good comparison to use Mobile and Montgomery because they were roughly about the same level when it came to per capita cases. And now what you're seeing is that Montgomery has actually exceeded Mobile by a pretty substantial margin. I mean, it's not like double the rate or whatever, but it's certainly more than it was. We're no longer looking at something where Mobile County and Montgomery County are roughly the same. And there's a couple of observations for that, a couple of possible explanations I want to dive into really quickly. The first one is that what is going on is that because now Montgomery is the new hotspot and really the only one left in the state of Alabama, that what you are seeing is a drastic increase in the number of people that are going to get tested. And so because you have an increase in number of people going to get tested because they believe that they might have the virus, whether they really should be going and getting tested, whether or not they actually are symptomatic or they're experiencing symptoms from something else, that may be on the rise because people are slightly more paranoid about getting the virus. The second half of this, the second half of this is that it is also possible that the reason that you're seeing places that wound up getting the virus very early, by the way, two of the places, two of the cities and locales that were the, the hardest hit early on in this pandemic were Madison County and Jefferson County with Huntsville and Mobile. Now, Madison County never really got out of control. Jefferson County, that was the hot spot. It and, and Shelby County were the, the that was the the ground zero really for Alabama and how that that part was really bad. Montgomery 
we actually had significantly below average cases for our population for a very long time. And, and when I say long time, I'm talking about a couple months into it. We didn't really start becoming a hotspot until about two, three weeks ago. And so part of the possible reason for that is that we actually did a very good job on containment. And so what is happening now is because nobody got the virus early on in this particular part of the state that for some reason that has meant that it has spread more quickly when we opened up. So the other parts of, of Alabama that have large cities but didn't get the virus as bad, what happened with them is they started slowly building a herd immunity at a at a place where they kind of flattened the curve and they were all indoors when that happened we didn't start really picking up steam until afterward and because of that we didn't have the ability to put on her immunity now now remember not a doctor not an expert in pandemics these are just theories i'm not even saying that i necessarily think that that is what's going on it's just the only explanation that i could come up with for this otherwise pretty strange phenomenon of how we're so quickly increasing in our per capita rate despite other cities having gone through a similar situation at a time where the virus was actually much more prevalent nationwide and Montgomery did not And so that's really the only explanation that I have at this time that, that at least somewhat makes sense. That is at least somewhat plausible. We'll continue to monitor the story, tell you how things are going and, and try to get back with you with better information on that. Now let's go ahead and switch and look at the new cases for the coronavirus. And this is another reason why I decided not to spend a ton of time on the report tonight. You'll notice there, oh, very few cases today. Well, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, I attributed most of the numbers this morning to yesterday, and that is because I checked it as early as I could because the website actually went down for several hours last night. And so what I had to do was figure out exactly how to do this. And so I just took the numbers early this morning because normally I take the numbers at 4.30 in the afternoon. So I took the numbers this morning and attributed them to yesterday to get as close as I could since the Alabama Department of Public Health, their reporting was down. I couldn't check it yesterday afternoon the way that I normally do, which actually is good because that means that overall the span of two days, we're roughly about you know, almost back to what would be considered normal somewhere in the 300 range if you split the difference between the two days. But still, either way you look at it, our numbers, especially over the past few days, have still been significantly up. We'll get a better look at that within the next couple of days. So hopefully that's not something that is too far gone. We'll get better stats on that in the next couple of days, and we'll cover that in more depth as the week goes on. Let's go ahead and look at new testing in the state of Alabama. Now, this is good news because, again, yesterday, if you, if you split the difference, and, and this tends to happen with Saturday, uh, just something that we notice that there is, or not Saturday, Sunday, there tends to be less testing on Sunday. So if you split the difference between these two, you'll notice that the new testing was, you know, a little bit subpar, but that's to be expected for the weekend. But the point is, the fact that it actually is so high on this weekend as opposed to several previous weekends is something that is encouraging. Hopefully that means that we'll have more in the coming days, but either way, we'll just keep an eye on that, let you know whenever we have uh, better statistics, better numbers 
to be able to give you something that will will give us a little more indication of how we're doing. We're still lagging behind a couple of our neighbors on testing, but we're also still ahead of a couple of our neighbors. So again, when it comes to testing, we're you know roughly middle of the packish, at least for right now. Let's go ahead and look at the number of hospitalizations due to COVID-19. So you'll see that our hospitalizations had a bit of a spike at the end of the week last week, but ever since the weekend, things have gone to moderate, I would say. So, you know, maybe that's something to kind of be excited about. We'll have to see if it continues on a downward trend throughout the week. If so, yay. Because if we're having an increase in cases and our hospitalizations wind up going down, which we had that same phenomenon happening a couple weeks ago, remember this is a lagging statistic. So if we're having this big spike in cases and it does not result in a big spike in hospitalizations, then that is a very good sign. It means that we wound up flattening the curve sufficiently and did so in time so as to not exhaust our medical resources. And finally, here are the people that have died as a result of COVID-19 in the Yellowhammer State. Now, one thing that you will pick up on very quickly about this one is that, whoa, there's a, a really big line there at the to tell end, but that's actually Sunday. And again, I had to do the same thing with the statistics to keep everything even to make sure everything was fair. I had to attribute those to yesterday because that was the most recent numbers I could get for yesterday. So really what's happening, especially since you had zero deaths to, reported today, is that's probably two days. And if you split the difference in those two, by the way, that means that the death rate is roughly even with what it's been over the past couple of days, which is not great because the past two days were higher than we had the, the previous couple of days. And on top of that, the fact that this happened on a weekend is somewhat alarming. I wouldn't say, like, go into full panic mode or anything, certainly. Uh, we're still nowhere near what we were even projected to be at this point. And, and that's if we continued the shutdown even longer. But based on this prediction, based on what we're seeing here, the death rate continues to be at least somewhat below average. And on top of that, if you balance it out, Maybe the fact that it happened on the weekend and that we had a sustained death rate at roughly 15-ish is a bad sign. And if if that happens in the weekend, there is a possibility that when the week resumes, then our death rate winds up, what's the word I'm looking for, proportionately increasing, which would mean that we would be somewhere in the 30 to 40 range again which we have not been in more than a week. So I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we do not have a resurgence of that, but we'll see where that goes. It doesn't appear as though that is the trend that is going to continue. We have no indication of that, but that's where we stand at least as of right now. So the hospitalization rate is somewhat steady. The death rate is lower than average, but on a upward trend, at least over the past couple of days and kind of stagnated after that period. So we'll see where the numbers are in a couple of days. I think it's going to be a much better indication. And again, because the stats were somewhat skewed because I had to cobble them together considering the site was down. Uh, those are real numbers, of course, but they're numbers that were reported late. So we'll we'll have to do a little bit more digging tomorrow. We'll we'll go a little bit more in depth into the numbers and see exactly what that means. But it is also possible 
It is also possible that one of Alabama's more famous residents here has passed away. And this is something that's very hard for me to talk about because even though I wasn't alive for most of his coaching career, he is a integral part. Even somebody of my generation remembers him being an important part of the Auburn family. Pat Dye, at age 80, has passed away. We do not know if this death is in any way related to COVID-19. I'm sure there will be news on that in the very near future. But Coach Dye, who, I mean, just a, a fantastic part of the Auburn family, was always around, was always there, and, and wanted to be part of that environment, of course, went on a winning streak. And, and this is something that's important to me personally, uh, when he came back and defeated Alabama in 1989 for the first time in Jordan-Hare Stadium, that was the year that I was born. So nice little, it was real nice of Coach Dye to uh, give that to me as a birthday present, beating Alabama in Jordan-Hare. But, but seriously, uh, Coach Dye, according to his son, a report that was given by him, he had tested positive for the coronavirus, but the most recent thing that we heard is that he was completely asymptomatic. So maybe it manifested late. Maybe those reports just had not been updated and he started experiencing symptoms and it all came on him really suddenly. Look, guys, I, I know that at 80, you're no spring chicken and you're definitely in the danger zone for passing away with this disease. But there are also 80-year-olds that probably would have beaten this thing easily, and, and there are people much older than 80. We have people over 100 that have actually survived COVID-19, so that's not a sure thing. But either way, a devastating loss for the Auburn faithful, especially people in my dad's generation, the uh, Generation X especially, because he, he was the coach during the formative years. He was there when they were in high school and college, and that kind of being the glory days of, of Auburn football, him being the coach that kind of turned that whole program around. And so there's a, a very special place in the heart of an Auburn fan for Coach Pat Dye, and he will be greatly missed. We'll try to keep you up to date on if there is any news as to what was the cause of his death. But either way, it is truly sad that that happened. And, and speaking of sad things, and I hate to do this because today's going to be kind of a bummer episode, but it's just that's the news. We had a lot of bad news today, and so I got a report on the news. Birmingham, our neighbors just, what, 45 minutes to the north, depending on how fast you drive? They're having a, a tough time right now. The largest, most populated city in the state of Alabama, though Huntsville is probably set to surpass it within the near future, but for right now, Alabama's biggest city is in real trouble. Because what has happened there here recently with the riots and reaction to the George Floyd case last night was especially devastating for the community. I actually happened to have friends that, that live in Birmingham that had their places of business attacked, that there were floors that were trashed, even though, I mean, obviously, not, not only were these people just basically innocent bystanders that, that had their companies destroyed, they weren't even in the same city as the incident that allegedly resulted in the uh, the riots taking place. And I say allegedly because I'm, I'm going to go there in a second and explain what all I mean by that. But just to give you an update on what all happened, there was a Confederate monument in Lynn Park, which has been the source of a lot of controversy. If you've been following 
this news program or just news in general in the state of Alabama, you understand why that particular memorial is so controversial. It's a Confederate memorial that was put there in the park a long time ago. The city of Birmingham, which is a a pretty deep blue city, they wanted to go ahead and get rid of it and actually got the votes, got the people in with the city council, had approval from the mayor and everything. And the state of Alabama has passed a law that says that you cannot just tear down, even if it's a city-owned park and you're the people that represent your citizens in the city, you're not allowed to take down any monuments unless you get our permission first. Now, this was an obvious play. I said it at the time. This is not new information. This is not a new stance for me. I've been saying this from the very beginning. Being a federalist, the, the federalist that I am, I believe in local control, and even though I disagree with taking down Confederate monuments. I don't think that it's the right thing to do. I'm a, a person that believes in that history and, and wants to preserve the history and preserve it accurately. The good and the bad show the good alongside the bad with it. But I think that it's important to keep things like that there, if nothing else, because we're, we're already a nation that is losing our history as is and accelerating that or... Uh, whether it's painting it with an overly optimistic or an overly pessimistic brush is not the right thing to do. So there we are with uh, the Confederate monuments and the, the, the state passed a law, which I disagreed with, saying that Birmingham cannot take down that monument. And so it's been the source of a lot of political debate. I've done shows on this in the past. If you're interested in my stance on that, if you're interested in my take on that, Feel free to go look at that now, but ultimately, even though I disagree with the decision to remove the monument, I think that that ought to be Birmingham's decision to make. Well, last night, and I think that the controversial nature of this monument is is a big contributing factor to the reason that this thing was targeted, not justifying it, just saying that that's probably the reason that they thought, let's go ahead and tear down this specific monument. So that... Confederate uh, monument there in Lynn Park was attacked last night. They tried to tear it down. They attached a pickup truck to it and tried to pull it down that way, which by the way, as a redneck, I have to comment on this. I was watching the way that they tried to tear it down. They basically just uh, hooked a rope up to a truck and, and tried to use the rope and the truck to pull the monument down. And I got to tell you, It's one of the dumbest things that I've ever seen because the way that they had it hooked up and the distance, the length of the rope that they had and the rope wound up snapping, which could very easily hurt somebody. uh, The way that they had it hooked up is the truck wasn't far enough away from the monument to where if they had actually succeeded and they didn't, but if they had actually succeeded in pulling that monument down, there could have been somebody very seriously injured because the monument would have fell on top of the vehicle. And so one of the reasons that this is the wrong way to do this, I think that I am actually on the side of Birmingham, weirdly enough, in this particular fight. I think that the state should not have intervened and the state does not have the right to say to a city, you have to have this in your park or you have to ask us permission before you take it down, whether it's a Confederate monument or anything else. That's the city's business. That's not the state's business. But anyway, them trying to take it down, that's the wrong way to go about it. And what bothers me about this is the very same people that are accusing the state of bullying and 
you know, just taking advantage and, and taking authority that they don't have, which is an argument that I agree with, an argument I've made on this show before, you're doing the same thing that they're doing. Random people in the streets do not have the authority to tear down city property. Even if the city doesn't want that property, this thing needs to be fought out in the courts. This thing needs to be taken care of, and the state needs to undo this. And I, I, I feel for you, I'm sympathetic to the cause, as I've just said, even though I, I don't like the idea of the Confederate monument being taken down, I think that's Birmingham's decision to make. However, this is not the right way to do it. And I, I just do not see that this winds up doing anything good. And what really burns me up about this is that the Birmingham police stood back and did nothing when this was taking place. Look, I, I get that you don't want the monument there. I, I, again, I, I just rehashed and gave an explanation of why I see things your way on this. The police still should have s stepped in because it is their job to defend state property. Or, sorry, not state property, city property like this. And as bad as that is, and it is bad, what I'm even more bothered by is the fact that they tried to set on fire another statue of Thomas Jefferson. And even though I think that they have, in many ways, there is an ignorance of history and an ignorance and understanding of the Confederate monuments and the, the Civil War and, and everything surrounding that, which is the reason I, I do think that those monuments should stay in place. It doesn't make any sense to attack a statue of Thomas Jefferson. That, that's inconscionable. I mean, especially when you consider that Thomas Jefferson was the biggest abolitionist by far of all of the founders. I mean, in three different courts, at his state court, at the federal level, and then again in France, he tried to eliminate slavery, specifically race-based slavery. And I have another video about that. You can go back and read Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence, where he specifically denounces slavery and says that it's one of the reasons they want to win the revolution is so that they can abolish slavery in the new country. And you can go back and read that. You can hear me read it. I go through the whole thing. Uh, I'll go ahead and put a YouTube card up here once this recording is done so that you can look at that. But that just doesn't make any sense, and they're tearing up a whole lot of other things that, again, it, it really doesn't make any sense at all that they're doing this. And it bothers me because they are taking authority that they don't have and not going through the proper channels, which is exactly the same thing that the state is doing and bullying them. And so there is a, a healthy dose of hypocrisy going on here. Several other things in Birmingham were damaged. For example, the courthouse there had its windows uh, smashed open. They actually wound up burning an American flag at the Wells Fargo building. So just all kinds of savagery and villainy going on there. There has been a state of emergency declared in the city of Birmingham. And this was done by Mayor Woodfin. And there is a citywide curfew at 7 p.m. Now, again, my, my initial instinct is always to give the people as much freedom as possible and to not punish the law abider alongside the law breaker. And that's one of the reasons that I'm not a fan of curfews. First of all, in virtually every situation, they've shown to be completely ineffective in doing what they set out to do. 
And we actually had this fight right here in Montgomery with the curfew on uh, the, the was result of the coronavirus and our own mayor, Mayor Reed, calling for that, even though there's no reason to believe that that would actually help curtail the spread of coronavirus. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It actually it winds up spreading it faster. But anyway, and it, I, again, I've gone over that in previous episodes as well. But at least here, it does make some sense. Still don't agree with it. Still don't think it should be done. I, I still think that curfews are overly heavy-handed, that they don't really solve the problem because, by definition, the lawbreakers are going to be still out because those are people that break the law. But regardless, at least in this situation, I do understand the rationale. At least in a circumstance like this, to keep property damage to a minimum and that kind of thing... I get it. They they want to make sure after dark everybody is is put away because there is they're less likely to do illegal things if they're only allowed out in the daytime and they're able to round somebody up if they're just suspicious. But that's the thing in this country when we're talking about justice and and I do think that it's interesting that since we're having this conversation that largely revolves around the role of law enforcement and the power of the state and the municipality that the solution to this has been to give the state and the municipality more power than they normally have. I do at least understand the rationale of a curfew in this one particular situation, and I understand that as a mayor, that's a very tough call to make. So I I do not envy Mayor Woodfin on this, but at the same time, I, I just can't get on board with that. I don't think that it's the right thing to do. The state of emergency I don't necessarily have a problem with. For example, the governor has allowed for the deployment of the National Guard. There have been rumors circulating around, unverified as of yet, that similar things are planned to take place here in the capital city tonight. And so the National Guard has also been approved to try to keep the peace here in the capital city. So hopefully... There's no funny business going on there. But to show you the scene and and what was going on and and some of the inhuman savagery that was taking place the other night, here is a clip of some AL.com reporters who were actually attacked by the rioters. Take a look. We're going to stick together here media-wise. I'm sorry, guys. We're getting attacked on camera. We're getting attacked. Nobody. Oh my God! That's our Madison underwear. Oh my God! So you can see the pandemonium. You can really see the pandemonium ensue there, and the reporter. And I do feel really bad for them because. You see that in the very beginning of that clip, one of the reporters is hit in the head with a bottle. They break a bottle over his head. And then uh, a little bit, I don't know if she was actually hurt or not, but uh, scares the pants off of the the female reporter there. And then you see the guy that the the random person just comes up and starts assaulting the reporter now. Uh, Falls to the ground, gets beaten up. He does say on Twitter, he did mention that uh, he's okay, that he's been checked out by a doctor, and apparently he's fine. But this is the kind of thing that happens between animals. This is not normal human behavior of people that function in a polite society. 
And what's crazy here is, is this wasn't even a conservative news outlet. These people are indiscriminately, whether they see them as friend or foe, attacking them. And we'll get into that a little bit later in the the segment, as, or sorry, a little bit later in the show as well. But sadly, stories like this are, are not unique to Birmingham. I mean, we've seen all kinds of it. I'm sure you've seen, if you've been paying any attention to the national news at all, you've just seen clip after clip after clip of people invading Nike stores and tearing down businesses, looting malls. I mean, we could literally do a show of just four hours of nothing but clips because of all the outrageous content that has been produced in the past few days. I'm not going to go over all of that. I I think that there's something to be said. Uh, If you want those clips, I know that you're going to be able to find them. So, unfortunately, this kind of behavior is not something that is only happening in Birmingham. But I want you to really dive into this and think that if these random people can be attacked, I don't know if they were attacked because of the color of their skin or not. I I really have no idea. They were just reporters. I don't know if they were attacked because they were the media. I don't know if they were attacked just because they were white. I, I really don't know. It could have been racially motivated. But Regardless, these are people that are, I mean, just savages. There's no other way to state it. These are people that have jettisoned reason and rationale, and you cannot have a talk, you cannot have a conversation about this. And this is the thing that is so incredibly sad about this, because here you had a case with George Floyd's death that virtually everybody was on board with from the beginning. Everybody. I mean, there was not a person of any renown that I was aware of, conservative, liberal, libertarian, Green Party, people that didn't pay any attention to the news and never voted before. Everybody saw that video and immediately went, that cop killed that guy. I mean, even in cases that I thought the cops were wrong, like, let's take Eric Garner, or to some degree there was some culpability in the Flando Castile case. Even in situations like that, where I thought the cops were were wrong or overly heavy-handed or whatever, I could at least see how the cop got there, even though I thought that um, in in that case, for example, that if nothing else, they should be tried and, and probably convicted for manslaughter. Even in those cases, I was like, okay, well, I understand where the cop was coming from, even if I disagreed with the decision he wound up ultimately making. I don't know of anybody that was saying, how do you even think that leaning on somebody's neck and strangling them to death is all right? Nobody was saying that on any side of the aisle. And yet, this is what we're seeing. This is the result of that. It's incredibly blatant. It's incredibly one-sided. And because of that, people that have had questions about some of these cases recently when we're talking about things like Freddie Gray, where the police were in the right, or Michael Brown, where, again, the police were in the right. The people like me that had been saying, you can't take that, you can't just assume that the cop is right. You have to look at these things on a case-by-case basis and go where the evidence leads. This is a perfect case study in that being correct, we weren't just saying that so that we could defend police officers or because we're defaulting to always take the police officer's side. We looked at this one and said, well, the police officer's obviously wrong in this case. 
And yet the riots and the protest have been violent. And they're calling out for justice for for this guy, George Floyd. And I'm like, but, but there's that, that's fine if you want to do that and march peacefully for it, but there's nobody that's saying that the police officers shouldn't face justice or that the police officers should not be reprimanded and, and fired and convicted if the, that's where the evidence leads. And I, I don't see how the evidence could lead anywhere else considering we've got video footage of that. But it's just amazing to me that this was a case that virtually every American agreed with and somehow this becomes the thing that's super divisive? I just, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me that your your reaction to this is just to attack some random journalist walking around and Lord knows I'm not the world's biggest AL.com fan. I mean, sometimes they do fantastic work. Sometimes they do things that I have a whole segment on my show talking about how wrong they are. But the point is that that shouldn't matter. These are human beings. This isn't a media versus mob case. It's a the, the case of a human being mistreated. Which is ironically what these people claim to be standing up for. What these people claim to be about is to making sure that human beings are treated equally, but then seemingly, and I don't know if it was racially motivated or not, but either way, they wind up targeting random people that have nothing to do with it. That's the opposite of justice. It's savagery. And it makes us look like animals. And one other thing that I wanted to say about this too, and, and specifically because this is happening in Alabama, look at the timing. Look at when this is happening. We have just barely, and I'm not saying that the Floyd thing was a conspiracy or anything like that. What I'm saying is, look at how bad the timing is. I do think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a conspiracy. But look at how bad the timing is. Look at here, where we have a situation where businesses are just now starting to open up. Most of them that have survived this long shutdown, if they have survived, they just scrape by by the skin of their teeth. They don't have a lot of liquid assets left. They've got to start turning some profit or else they're going to go completely belly up and, and our unemployment gets even worse. And then stuff like this happens where random businesses have massive levels of property damage, their inventory is being looted, the city is being torn up, people are scared to go out, people are scared to go... I mean, like I said, even though I don't agree with the curfew, I can kind of see where the mayor's coming from. What do you think that curfew is going to do to the restaurants that have already been shut down this whole time? Target's a perfect example. We've all seen, for example, the, the footage of the Minneapolis Target that was completely just stripped bare. And because of that, all Target stores have had to close. Remember, Target is one of the big box stores. And they never shut down. They had money that continued to go even during the virus. When everybody else was shut down, Target was allowed to stay open pretty much nationwide. And now these riots have happened and they have to shut everything down. This has a devastating effect on our economy that is incalculable, especially right now. Probably doesn't make much more than a blip on the radar under normal circumstances, but right now? I mean, if you're a business owner 
you've just now started to get back on your feet. You've maybe been open for a week or two and you're like, whew, maybe we can survive this thing. Maybe we can eke it out and, and just survive another year and, you know, maybe take a loss this year or even next year. And then maybe we'll start turning profit again after that. But thank, you know, thank God that we were able to hold out as long as we have. And then something like this happens and your business gets smashed in. I, I mean, there, the timing could not be worse. The timing could absolutely just not be worse. And here's another thing that I want you to consider when it comes to the virus. Is it possible that part of the reason that the riots have come out and they are especially worse than they would normally be is because of that economic turmoil? Hear me out on this one. Do you remember the last time that we had large nationwide riots with violent protesters smashing in buildings, things like this? It happened several years ago before Donald Trump was elected in the latter years of the Obama administration, specifically before the recovery started. And the recovery did start kicking up at least some under Barack Obama, but still had pretty bad unemployment numbers, still had a lot of people out there looking for work. I think that there is some correlation. I don't think it's the only factor, but I think that there is at least some correlation between the fact that we've got a whole lot of people right now in the country, especially in cities where these riots are primarily happening, that there is a correlation between the number of people that we have not working, that don't have to wake up the next morning, that aren't worried about being caught on camera and losing their job, something like that, and the fact that we have all of these people that feel like they've got nothing to lose. Remember that a lot of these families, not just businesses, but a lot of these families have probably been taking a hit. And part of the reason, at least in their mind, that they probably feel justified in looting is that they have had some really tough economic times like a lot of us have, like a lot of families around the country have. And so my question is, when it comes to these mandatory government shutdowns, how much did that contribute to this? I don't know how much. I don't think it's even possible to quantify it into some kind of objective number. But I'm saying we have to consider the fact that part of the reason that this is really bad is because right now the economy is really bad. Because once the economy started picking up, especially after really the first six months of the Trump administration, uh, because it really started kicking into overdrive right about anywhere from the, the six-month to 18-month period after he got elected. If you do understand that and you saw that there were still violent protests, but they typically happened in very secluded cities and they were pretty small. They were not nationwide like this. You would have them happening with Antifa attacking places in Seattle. You would have uh, marches and then counter marches that happened in one city, but it was in one city. They didn't spread like this. And I think that the economic turmoil is a big part of it. Not saying it's the only factor, but it is a big part of the reason that all of this is happening. But to the people that were rioting and looting and tearing up their own community there in Birmingham, I do want you to think about this. What has been done here? Even if you really are somebody that believes in the systematic racism and, and thinks that law enforcement are, are basically just put together to be uh, a shackle specifically on black people and that you guys get targeted more than everybody else and, and all this other stuff, even if you buy into that narrative, ignore whether or not you agree with me with that for a second. 
even if you think that's 100% true, and you really are specifically trying to affect some kind of political change to make things go in your favor, using tactics like this makes you no better than the racist white people in Birmingham that did exactly the same thing to black citizens in the 60s. People that used violence, and I mean, of course, the, the worst case of that was the 16th Street Baptist Church, where the church was actually bombed by racists. How are you any better than them if these are the tactics you're going to use? I'm not saying every single person that marched in Birmingham, because I know that there were some people that didn't want any part of that, that didn't hurt anybody, didn't want to hurt anybody. There were probably protesters out there that if they had seen what we just saw happen to those AL.com people, the the AL.com media personalities, they probably would have rushed in to help them. They just weren't around when that happened. But the fact that this is an element of that, that there are people in the movement that are willing to do this, that are willing to act like this, those people are no better than the very racist that Dr. King was fighting in Birmingham in the 1960s. That people, sometimes people in power, that turned dogs and water hoses on peaceful protesters You're no better than them if you're going to use terror and fear and violence to try to get your way. You're adopting the tactics of the people you claim to be against. It's just something to think about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Do you have one other thing that I wanted to bring up? Because I really do think, based on everything that I've seen about the the protest and the more often, unfortunately, riots that are going on in the country, I think that there are two types of opportunism going on here. That really, the protests have been mostly hijacked, at least in the media sphere, I don't know necessarily that, quote-unquote, the majority of protests have been not peaceful. And in fact, probably what's happening is that they're, you know, roughly even, if not being more on the peaceful side. But of course, what is sensationalized always winds up being consumed by the media. And so because of that, that's what we're all seeing. That's what the story and the narrative eventually becomes. And so because of that, I think that there is a, an awful lot of opportunism going on here, and I think it's actually coming from two separate groups, because there are people, good people, that are genuinely just wanting the right thing to happen, they are out there for the reasons that they claim they're actually out there, wouldn't hurt a fly. And I think that a lot of the rank-and-file people that are going out and marching for that are probably, you know, pretty much in that category. Then there are also some that probably wouldn't take the initiative, and I think that this may be a good portion of the crowd, unfortunately. They wouldn't take the initiative to turn a protest violent. They wouldn't take the initiative to destroy property. But if provided with the opportunity, and other people are doing it, then they probably could be talked into it. And then you have the people that are actually making that leap. The people that are actually doing violence, destroying property, 
and then also people that are looting. And I think that these are actually two completely separate groups, even though they are similar in certain ways. And so I'm going to go over that. The first group are the looters. And I think these people really are just thugs that want free stuff. I think that's really as complicated as it is. I don't think that there's some kind of deeper existential meaning. I don't really think they're thinking at all. I think that they are seeing stuff that they want, and they are seeing other people that are saying that it's okay to take it by their actions or or by their words. And so because of that, they are taking this and using it as an opportunity. And because they get into a crowd, they feel safer. They get that mob mentality. And so they go out and they steal things from other people. We saw this with the Target. We saw it with the Nike store, various other stores. You've seen footage of that over and over again. In fact, to sort of play up to this and to sort of confirm what I've, I've been saying, Minneapolis's mayor announced every single person that was arrested was from out of state. All of them. So every single person that they wound up actually being able to bring in, turns out they weren't even from the community. People were coming from all around, apparently, to Minneapolis to be able to loot and to take things. And so I think that a lot of these people are just looking for an excuse to steal things. And they're probably people, by and large, that would steal things even if it weren't like this. They just see the opportunity for it to become easier for them. In other words, these are the same kind of people that would just as soon steal from these same stores or, or other people, but now they see an opportunity to do so with much more ease. And so I think that that's a big part of this, that there are people that are just basically driving in from other places because they say, hey, it's going to be a lot easier to get that TV that I would like to steal from my neighbor. It'd be much easier for me to just do it when I've got a crowd and can do it directly from the store. That's what's going on here. And then Minnesota's governor, he actually said that based on his estimates and and from his department, which is dealing with this, they believe that up to 80% of the people that are actually in these crowds are coming from out of state. 80% is an awful lot. And this is not exactly a bastion of conservatism. Remember that Minnesota also has, as one of its representatives in Congress, Ilhan Omar. So this is a very Democrat-controlled region. It's a Democrat-controlled city. And I'm not blaming the Democrats for that. I'm just saying that you couldn't make the argument that what's going on here is that these are, uh, you know, that it's conservatives that are trying to infiltrate and make the crowds look bad. That just seems ridiculously unlikely with this. The people that are looting are, by and large, I think people that are just using this as an excuse to get free stuff. And these people, as a general rule, they don't care about the Black Lives Matter movement. They don't care about George Floyd. They only care about themselves. The fact that they are willing to steal is a pretty big testament to that. Because if they were really concerned about the issue, again, whether or not you agree with me on the idea of systemic racism still being a major problem, a major issue in the United States of America, whether you might think that it's 100% real, but if you are that person that believes that, then what you would have to do is do the exact opposite of what these looters are doing. 
if you are a true believer, as it were, then you would never do something like this because you know that it hurts the appearance of the movement. You know that you are less likely to get that which you want, in other words, reforms or whatever it is that the crowd is saying that they want from society in general, if this is the face of the protest. You know that that basically makes your political message completely null and void and gets all lost in the static. And so what's going on here is that those people probably are very upset that there are people that are looting and rioting. But the second part of this, the second group of people that are infiltrating this, uh, this movement, these protests, is Antifa. And the thing about Antifa is they want chaos. They want violence. It's part of their mantra. They want violence in the, the streets. They do want to overthrow the capitalist system. And one of the ways that you can do that, you can look back at Saul Alinsky, Cloward and Piven. You look at all the socialist and communist revolutionaries through history. They all believe that the way that that had to take place, I mean, even including Adolf Hitler, there's a reason that he had the brown shirts. They all believe that it had to happen with giant civil unrest primarily with groups of people creating chaos in the streets. That's their goal. They don't really care about black people. They would pay lip service to it, sure. But ultimately, they don't really care about that. They really care about the socialist revolution that's going on, and if they can use black people to get there, well, then that's fine with them. And here's some proof of what I'm saying. There is an infiltration by Antifa by people, by the way, who primarily aren't even black. There are some black people in Antifa, but if you look at, at pictures, you look at it, it is an organization that is largely overwhelmingly white. If you've seen pictures, and, and remember that Antifa is most active, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, in states like California, Northern California, that, that area, uh, they're especially active in Oregon and Washington, and you'll notice that in pictures there, and, and this partly reflects the demographics of those areas, very, very few non-white people. And by the way, if you look at this clip, you'll see this actually happening in real time. I want you to know this is not... This is police people's way of Let me tell you this. This is not a black woman who's putting Black Lives Matter. I just want you to know that when... Right, but y'all y'all doing that for us and we ain't asked you to do that. Listen, don't, don't, don't spray stuff out here when they gonna blame black people for this and black people didn't do it. They not gonna show y'all faces when they see that on their building. They gonna blame that on us. Y'all are part of the problem. News come on, they gonna say we did that. We didn't do that. Stuff like this ain't right. And right there, I think that the woman that is doing the taping, that's actually a pretty brave young lady. And what you're seeing there is... Two women with Antifa, they're dressed all in black with the mask on. They're clearly members of Antifa infiltrating this protest. They're the ones that are there causing the property damage. The people that are there for Black Lives Matter, at least the ones that are standing there, not saying that there aren't violent parts of Black Lives Matter as well, but they're looking on and they're saying, no, no, don't do that. They're going to blame us for that. And Antifa is there putting up, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and all of that stuff, trying to make it seem as though 
the people there that are protesting are the ones responsible. And when the black people ask them to stop, they ignore them and do it anyway. Like I said, Antifa doesn't care if they have to use black people, doesn't care if they have to use other minority groups. Frankly, they don't even care if it was white people. They don't care what side they're on as long as it leads to a socialist communist revolution. That is Antifa's end goal. They don't care who they have to use or step over to get there. And that video is one of, I'm sure, many, and, and there actually are other videos of Antifa doing basically the same thing. Uh, they just didn't have the, the woman giving commentary there in that video. They're trying to turn this into a full-on war between the capitalist system and everybody else. They're trying to stoke those flames. They're trying to fan the flames of chaos in order to remake the world more to their liking, which, by the way, is the Fabian Society's motto, which what led to Antifa. And that's what you're seeing going on here. And I genuinely feel sorry for this lady that it, she sees it, she sees what's going on, she understands these people are not with them. They are there specifically to try to get the media, the police, everything else to blame the protesters for what's going on. This is how infiltration works. It's the same kind of infiltration that I've been worried about for years with things like, for example, the Tea Party. For example, the Second Amendment rally that happened in Virginia. You may remember that when I was covering that, I said, guys, be extremely careful of who you're standing with. Because it only takes a handful of nuts, especially nuts that happen to be armed with firearms. Now, granted, I don't think that anything really would happen because those people would be surrounded by good citizens that actually do want to protect people and protect lives that would also be armed to the teeth if they tried to do something at the Second Amendment rally. But all it takes is one person that is there to infiltrate and to try to make the movement look bad in order to completely co-opt and overhaul what is going on. Look at what happened with all of the protests over the coronavirus. There were people at uh, Michigan's state capitol. They just took a picture of a guy yelling at politicians, not yelling at police, yelling at politicians, but the way that they framed it and the way that they cropped it, they made it look as though the guy was yelling at the cops. And that became the symbol of the whole movement. That became the image that the media ran with because they wanted to paint the people in Michigan there with guns protesting and carrying the, the way that the Constitution commands and, and doing so peacefully. They tried to paint them as radical uh, racist and, you know, rabid Trump supporters and all these other things they had not a lot of evidence for, to be perfectly frank. And they tried to co-opt that and make that the symbol of all the protests nationwide. Antifa's doing exactly the same thing here. It's just, instead of the picture being misleading, they're trying to create the misleading image. That's what's going on here. This is how they infiltrate groups. And it really is, because here's the thing. Th this is how this works. Let's say that the result of this is, is the intended result, and you have a whole bunch of people that get angry at the Black Lives Matter protesters for this. Well, the Black Lives Matter protesters are going to lash out and, and lash back at the people that are angry about this, that don't know that Antifa was the one that was actually responsible, that was basically trying to frame them. 
Well, see, then you wind up with two people in a very heated discussion going at it with one another, despite the fact that neither one has technically done anything wrong. Because the, the person on the protesting side, they're like, no, I was there. There was nobody that was doing something like that. They weren't spray painting and graffitiing buildings. They weren't smashing in windows. And the other person's like, but I see the pictures. It's right there. You see how this works? You see how they use this to try to turn people against one another? That's how you do it, gang. And this is how Antifa operates. Now, another thing that's really interesting about this is sort of at the meta level. There have been multiple reports from different cities. And this is footage of of just one of it. There's other videos similar to this as well of Antifa just somehow coming across random giant pallets of bricks which seems super convenient considering they tend to use them to throw them at police officers or smash in windows. Here's that clip. anything that's, I don't know, way off in that footage? Did you notice that, for one, the construction equipment with the giant pallet of bricks and, frankly, not much else is right there in the middle of the street that they closed the lane and had lane closure signs all up around it? Despite the fact that you don't do road construction with bricks. You lay asphalt. I mean, unless you're building a brick road, which was nowhere in sight, why why would you have bricks around? And there doesn't seem to be any construction going on in the, the stores nearby or anything. Now, maybe there was, and maybe this is just a weird coincidence, but it seems really odd that there's just a, a random pallet of bricks around when there are going to be protesters that would like to get their hands on some bricks just laying out there. It's almost like somebody left them. Now, I don't know if that was actually the case, but the fact that this has happened over and over again in multiple cities. Oh, and also, isn't it kind of odd that that one guy, if you saw near the back, he grabs a couple of shovels? It also seems kind of odd to me that workers, whether they're government or not, just have shovels lying around at the, the spot where they work where anybody could just pick them up at any time and walk off with them. That seems pretty odd to me. Seems like they would have to carry those around with them with their equipment. And so there's all these weird things going on with that, and and maybe it was funded by somebody else. Maybe they're basically just placing them there specifically for the protesters to pick up. I'm not saying that I know that for sure, but it seems like an awfully big convenience for that. It's it's a little too convenient for that to happen. It's almost like, uh, you know, with a video game, things kind of happen like that, you know, because they specifically designed the video game to be winnable, to to be like that. And so sometimes you'll find the random item that you just so happen to need to get through the dungeon or the level or whatever that you're in at the time that's there. That kind of feels like what just happened. It's almost like somebody put it there by design for them to find and then use. And you see there, it didn't take an awful lot of effort to break down the barricade, to get the the bricks unwrapped, and to be able to get them out very quickly. Again, it's just a lot of odd coincidences that just happen to string together Something's fishy there. So 
I guess we'll just continue to look into that and see if, if something like that was actually happening. Maybe the, the, the city workers or the, the city planners or whatever can explain that. I don't know, but we'll have to keep an eye on that one for sure. But the main point behind all this is the Antifa and groups like them, whether they're, they're big secret donors and backers that might be doing stuff like this. And, and by the way, Antifa does, in fact, have large corporate backers. Uh, you have to follow the money a little bit and it takes some doing to get there. But Antifa groups have been known to have transportation, things like that supplied to them. And so this does happen on occasion. But whether you're talking about them or whether you're talking about the street-level people that just organize and, and get together in groups uh, of Antifa, local chapters, that kind of thing, ultimately the message is that they will use black people, they will use George, George Floyd, they will use anything to reach their goal. And if they have to use black people as a stepping stone to get there, oh, they will absolutely do it as they're doing in these videos, in these clips that you can see there. So... They managed, this is what really bothers me about this. As I said earlier in the program, they managed to turn something that was largely agreed upon by pretty much everybody into something that is now completely divisive and a hot-button issue because of what's going on with the riots. It was a completely uncontroversial thing that has now had controversy artificially injected into it because of the response as opposed to what was going on. This is what Antifa does. They take things that are normally peaceful, that Americans can agree on, and they interject themselves into it to specifically stir up chaos. That's what's actually going on here. And by the way, if you, again, want more, I guess, clarification of this, that there are good people in these movements that are not trying to do this, that are resisting this, Look at this clip. This is one of the best clips that I've seen since this whole thing started. This is a guy being interviewed on CNN that is a protester that is saying that the people that are causing violence and, and rioting and looting, that those are just opportunities. Basically what I've been saying to you for the past 30 minutes. Watch this clip. This is what I got to say to the people who are destroying things. If you really feel like you have to take an opportunity, like if you're going to be an opportunistic, something is wrong with you. If you cannot stand up and fight the good fight and you want to be a cheater and go ahead and take what we're trying to do, something is wrong with you. Because what we're trying to do is stand up for the basic rights of humanity. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to do in a peaceful way. Who do not want to go through this anymore? Okay? I want to be able to go in a white neighborhood and feel safe. I want to be able, when a cop is driving behind me, I don't have to clinch and be tense, okay? I want to be able just to be free and not have to think about every step I take. Now, there are a couple of things that that guy said that I don't necessarily agree with. I don't necessarily see the systematic racism that he's talking about. And, and I'd say to him, look, brother, if you talk about tensing up when there's a police officer behind you, I think pretty much everybody does that. They're always afraid that they're not going to make a turn signal correctly or something like that. That happens to me. I tense up a little bit when there's a cop behind me because I'm always afraid that I'm going to, you know, do something wrong and he's going to wind up pulling me over. I mean, I, I know that they're just doing their job, but sometimes, you know, you do get a little nervous about that. And when it comes to being able to, to drive into a white neighborhood without feeling fear, look, 
most white people feel exactly the same way about black neighborhoods. See, now the funny thing is the difference there is when a white person would admit to that, they'd say, oh, well, you only feel that way because you're racist. You only feel that way because you think all black people are thugs or whatever. But when a black guy says that, they're like, oh, you poor thing. By the way, I think that both sentiments, it's terrible that people feel that. And I think that we should do absolutely everything that we can to make sure that you can drive into a, a neighborhood that it doesn't matter what the population looks like, that you feel comfortable. I'm for that. Was there anything that that guy said that the average person disagrees with or thinks is unreasonable? I don't think so. I think that he's somewhat misguided on where the source of that is. I think he's somewhat incorrect on how he views it or, or where that comes from, maybe. But I could have a conversation with that guy. See, he's upset like the woman that we saw in the clip earlier. He's upset that there are people that he knows are going to become the face of the movement that is going to be what people remember and that other people are going to be less likely and less willing to listen to the message that he has because there are violent idiots that are acting like animals that are doing so in the name of the movement that he's trying to support. I feel for the guy. I really do. I don't think there's a reasonable person, conservative, liberal, whatever, that wouldn't sit down and have a conversation with that guy. Don't necessarily agree with him on everything. I don't care. I would be willing to sit down and have that conversation and hear him out. But people are going to be less likely to do that because of these violent idiots going around and bombing a Jiffy Lube or an advanced auto parts or an O'Reilly's. A lot of auto parts store. I don't know why those get targeted, but they do. It just, it speaks to the frustration that is going on here. That there are people that this guy knows are bad actors that are either just doing it because they're greedy and they just want stuff for free and they don't mind using this as an opportunity to do it, or people like we showed you earlier infiltrators that are specifically trying to make the movement into something that the average person in that movement isn't. And I understand the guy's frustration from that standpoint. I do. As somebody that has done quite a bit of marching and protesting in my life, if I had people that were specifically trying to co-opt the message, I would be just as frustrated as he is. And so... I feel for him. I really do. I, I know that he realizes that this reflects badly on the cause that he feels like he's fighting for. And that's got to be something that's just heartbreaking for him. So there's one more clip that I wanted to show you before we move on tonight. And it is rioters attacking the CNN headquarters there in Atlanta. Again, miles and miles away from Minneapolis. But that's what was going on in Atlanta. I mean, you haven't seen Atlanta under siege like this since Sherman. And here it is at the CNN headquarters. This was actually live on CNN. They were covering it from inside their own building. Take a look. We're here inside CNN Center. We're just in the last 10 minutes. Demonstrators have started to come up and down this thoroughfare of Marietta and break out windows of CNN Center. Uh, it was just a short time ago that they started shooting what appeared to be BBs at us. I was struck with a BB pellet. Uh, it's unreal to witness here, Chris. This police line, we just saw an officer extracted. An officer was down. We don't know exactly how they were injured. Another officer here that was uh, standing on these steps took some glass in the arm. 
these demonstrators are ready to confront these uh, law enforcement officers. They've broken out the windows here and are continuing to throw objects. There's just another projectile fired, appear to be a full water, water bottle. Uh, but there are officers that we can report, at least two officers have been injured. One of them, it appeared to be seriously injured. We've heard the chants of no justice, no peace. Another large object just thrown there at CNN. This is our home, Chris, you know. This is where we come to work every day. Journalists who are trying to tell the truth, trying to deliver information. It's one of the noble parts about society, and these demonstrators have decided to come here today to take out their frustration and their anger, not just on the police, but it seems on our CNN center as well. Uh, you know, I mean, this, this is a crowd that came right. to confront police. They're angry. And we can't underscore, you know, on the cursory level, you see the violence that is happening and unfolding right in front of our cameras. They're here under the premise because a black man was killed by police. They want to hold police accountable. Their message, however, has taken a violent tone here. And we don't hear the mention of George Lloyd's name at all. No uh, you have some people are laughing. Some people are videotaping. They just threw something on fire, Chris, a firecracker. Yep. Nick, you all right? You okay? You okay? You okay, guys? Now, with what you just saw there, that does not look like something that even would happen in America, but it is. And I really do think that a lot of it has to do with this infiltration of Antifa. Not saying that there aren't people there that aren't members of Antifa that maybe got caught up in the mob mentality, but I think that they are primarily, maybe not exclusively, but primarily the catalyst for this kind of violent behavior. But what's really fascinating about all this is that, remember, that when it comes to CNN, that CNN is one that is very, very much on the left. These people don't care. In fact, the only thing that I can really help you understand exactly what this is, because I think the stakes here are a lot higher than anybody really realizes. This is the moment in Revenge of the Sith, the third Star Wars movie, where Anakin Skywalker takes down Count Dooku. And you remember he has him there, he winds up chopping off both of his hands. Count Dooku is defenseless. Dooku's a villain. He's a bad guy. And he's sitting there, and Anakin is about to take him out. And the Emperor there says, kill him. Now, remember, Anakin doesn't know that that's the Emperor. He doesn't know that that's Palpatine. He doesn't know that that's Darth Sidious. But Dooku does. And you can see the expression on, by the way, Christopher Lee, fantastic actor. It's a shame that he's no longer with us, playing Count Dooku there. You can see the look of betrayal on Christopher Lee's face, and he plays it off very well because it's just subtle enough that Anakin's character wouldn't be able to figure out that that is a look of betrayal. I mean, the the guy did just tell him to kill somebody, so the, the shock would be understandable. But if you understand that Sidious is actually the, the Dark Lord behind all of it, you understand that Dooku looking over there and, and seeing his master, see, that's when the light bulb goes off. And I don't think that that's actually happened for CNN, but in this particular moment, CNN is Count Dooku. And what just happened, the, the moment that should have made the light bulb go off, is that Dooku there realizes, oh, I'm not the plan. He's the plan. Darth Sidious doesn't want me 
to be ruling the universe at his side. He wants this guy to be doing that. I was just a useful idiot. I'm the one that's being used here. And I'm hoping, frankly, I have very little faith that CNN is going to understand it and see it this way. What just happened to CNN and what I hope CNN realizes, you're just the useful idiot. See, you're the one that's been apologizing and justifying things that have been done by people like Black Lives Matter and like Antifa. By the way, that broadcast happens during Chris Cuomo's show. And you may remember, if you have a memory that goes back more than a couple years, that it was Chris Cuomo, of all of the CNN anchors, that went the furthest in defending Antifa. Basically saying, see, their violence isn't as bad as other people's violence, because at least they're fighting on the right side. Chris Cuomo was doing the apology tour and and trying to explain to people why it's okay to think that Antifa being violent isn't, you know, quite as bad as other groups being violent. And I'm hoping what happened here is that CNN will finally have that aha moment that like, oh wait, they'll kill us too. These are violent, radical socialists. And they view CNN as much a part of the establishment as Fox News or any conservative news outlet out there. They will kill you and not think twice about it. I mean, I could give literary analogies all day long on this. But the point is, CNN just got betrayed and I hope that they understand that that's what just happened. That they're looking up and they're looking around and realizing, oh, these guys don't have any use for me. See, we thought we were the ones that were using them. We thought we were the ones that were going to be in power. And and when this violent overthrow happens, that we would be one of the select few and that we'd be fine. Nope. Turns out that you're just as expendable as everybody else. And I'm saying this not because I'm enjoying it. Even though I don't have much love for CNN. I don't want anything terrible to happen to them. And even though I think that they're woefully misguided, they are still Americans. They're still media people, just like I am. This is a fight that we all should be on the same side with. That we don't want a violent communist revolution. You see, CNN thought that these were useful idiots, just like the DNC did. They thought that they were going to use Antifa, and that's the reason that they downplayed their violence. They made excuses for them. They basically said that, well, we'll provide some cover for them because those are people that are likely to vote Democrat, and, and if nothing else, they're energizing the base, they're, they're you know vehemently anti-Trump, they don't like conservatives, we can use them, we can have them on our side. By, by the way, not unlike what I think originally went through Donald Trump's head with people like the alt-right. You don't screw around with these people. You don't invite terrorists into your camp. CNN has coddled people like this. They've made excuses for people like this for years now. And I'm hoping what they realize at this moment is, oh, we're not immune from their violence either. They're perfectly okay with taking us down too. 
frankly, I don't have a lot of faith that CNN is going to see it that way, but I, I hope that they do. And I genuinely do applaud President Trump for denoting these evil savages, these anarchists, these people that want a violent overthrow of the government as a terrorist organization. They may have different motives than people like Afghanistan, or uh, not Afghanistan, the Taliban, like ISIS. Their motives may not be some kind of religious war, but their tactics are roughly the same. They do want to overthrow the system. They do want to take control of the levers of power, and they want to use violence and terror to do it. Ergo, they are a terrorist organization. Now, effectively, I don't know exactly what this means, and what I am afraid of, and genuinely afraid of, is that this winds up being something that makes it easier for the surveillance state to spy on innocent Americans. I genuinely hope that does not happen, and I'm going to try to do my best to be vigilant to make sure that isn't happening to regular American citizens. We don't need more ways and more loopholes to avoid the Fourth Amendment. But at the same time, there's no question that these people are terrorists. They specifically use fear and intimidation and violence to try to get their political will carried out. That's a terrorist organization, no matter how you try to paint it up. Now, Antifa is not all that centrally organized, and so I'm not even sure that you would be able to enforce a lot of this stuff. But the overall point is that if nothing else, just symbolically labeling these people terrorist organizations, and especially considering how they go after people on the right and left, and they're willing to let the heads roll, just like they did in the French Revolution, I'm hoping that will shock some people awake and realize what we're actually fighting against, the destruction of our country. I hope that some people finally realize that. We all have to realize that the stakes here are much higher than I think even most of the players in the game really understood that they were. CNN being chiefest among them, I, I hope that there is at least some semblance of sanity. I, I don't think that they're going to suddenly become, you know, ardent conservatives or patriots or any of that. I am hoping that they'll realize that you, you can't play footsie with Antifa. I'm hoping, if nothing else, that may be the silver lining to all of this villainy that has taken place over the past few days. I hope that is true. But it's hard to say. So, I tell you what, we're, we're winding down on time here. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. I think we need it right now. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today, we're actually going to be foregoing our usual series on the Book of Samuel. Uh, we'll be rejoining that shortly but I'm going to do something very unusual for the Chaplain's Report, something I do not normally do, but I feel that it's imperative. Now, normally the Chaplain's Report is free from recent news. I, I don't plug it into what's going on in the world, at least in the sense that I, I don't like 
put it together with a news story intentionally. I keep it at least somewhat separate, and it's basically just a Bible lesson. I'm going to add something in here because it's incredibly timely, and there is a biblical message in it. It's a clip, and it's a little long, but believe me, it's worth it, from Bernice King. She is the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., and the words that she's saying, I think that we could all stand to try to digest and and take to heart here for a moment. I have to make an appeal to my brothers and sisters because I realize that the only way to get constructive change is through nonviolent means. You know, a lot of people have been using my father's words. Sometimes I get a little upset when people do that and co-opt those words and take them out of context. But I realize that he gave his life to this nation. He was a son of this state and of this city, born on the soils of this city, on Auburn Avenue. But he said to us, riots are the language of the unheard. And the part we often miss when people use it is the part about the unheard. This is a time when we all have to listen. We have to listen to the cries that are coming out of the hearts and the souls of my young brothers and sisters and all of the others that are in the streets of America right now and in our city. But if there's anything I can say to them as they cry out to look at these changes, because the changes have to happen. We can't go back to yesterday. We can't keep doing things like we've been doing it in this nation. We've got to deal with systemic racism and white supremacy once and for all. But the only pathway I know to do this is through nonviolent means. It is a proven method. It did not fail my father and them. As many people who think it failed, it did not fail them because one thing about it is when you really understand it and really practice it, it brings about the results. So right now it's about what is the end goal. The end goal is we want change and we want it now. But change never comes through violence. It is not a solution. Violence, in fact, creates more problems. It is not a solution. Nonviolent way is the way because the means and the ends have to be consistent. We will never get to the end of justice and equity and true peace, which is not merely the absence of tension but the presence of justice, unless we do it through nonviolent means. Why is that so different? Why is what we just saw so incredibly different? And what is so contrasted between the history that we know about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his movement to what we're seeing today? Now, the obvious answer is that one was violent and one wasn't, but that's the surface answer. Let's dig down deep into it. Because what she's saying is 100% right. That relying on violence, it may cause change, but it's not going to be change that you want. It only makes things worse. 
the reason that her father's movement was able to overcome all of that in a relatively short amount of time, really only about a decade. And the reason they were able to accomplish such massive change in such a short amount of time was because they were committed to nonviolence. I mean, if you've seen old footage, and it is a crying shame that so many people of my generation have not, if you have seen old footage of what has happened in this state, Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, when you look at that and you see what happens, and you're watching them and they're like, you're like, they're having, you know, dogs turned on them and, and having people attack. They're not even fighting back. Even at times where they were actually confronted with real violence. And they still refused to fight back. That's what changed people's minds. Acting like a thug, that doesn't change anybody. Going out and being a criminal and destroying other people, destroying their property, I mean, they, they believe that they even wound up killing a guy in, I believe it's, it's Austin, Texas. That doesn't change anybody's mind. And for the people that already might have had bias, that only confirms to them that you were what they always thought that you may have been. If you want to change a heart and a mind, you do it through nonviolence. That's what Dr. King believed. That's what he dedicated his life to. Unfortunately, it's the message that he eventually wound up dying for. But here's the thing we have to all keep in mind. The reason that it's so different, what is that deep answer underneath the surface level of just, well, one's nonviolent, one isn't? Why was one nonviolent? Because it was rooted in truth. It was rooted in the gospel. The reason that the protesters turned rioters, the reason that you're seeing the level of looting and chaos and villainy and anarchy that we have seen over the past week, the reason that that has happened in that movement, but it never happened in Dr. King's movement, is because everybody knew what they stood for and they had that common bond of being brothers and sisters in Christ. And all they wanted, their stated goal, was not vengeance, but reconciliation. They understood, fundamentally, that if they wanted to be able to get that equality that they so desperately and righteously sought out, that they would have to do so on the basis of Jesus Christ. Why? Because otherwise, the only allegiance that you have, the only thing that can make your life even somewhat meaningful, is your tribe. Tribalism is a cancer that has plagued the human race practically since its existence. You can see all throughout the Old Testament, what were their tribes based on? What were their gods that they worshipped? What are the idols that they bowed down to? It, were, it was primarily gods that lived in their mind, in their tribe, and favored their tribe. They had tribal gods. The god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a universal God, a non-tribal God, one that had, yes, a special relationship with Israel, but he was the God of everybody. This was true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's, it's in every single story, practically. 
This idea that there is a God that created all, and thus all men, at least in some sense, are brothers and sisters. If you want to break people out of the mindset that something as trivial as your skin tone is what defines you as a person, and break somebody out of the the idea that their tribe is what's really important and that we should all get together and that we should all be equal, then you have to start with that. You have to start with a common kinship of humanity. The problem with this and the reason that you've seen looting and all kinds of, of violence and property destruction and people getting hurt and assaulted, so on and so forth, is because they see those people as less than people. They see those people, whether it's because of the color of their skin or, or because they're you know members of Antifa and they see everybody that isn't a socialist as a member of not their tribe. They see those people as less than them because they are tribalist at heart. If you are a Christian at heart, it is impossible to believe that your tribe is better than every other tribe because you see everybody as part of your tribe, or at the very least a potential member. If you're looking at it in terms of saved and lost, if you're looking at it in terms of Christianity in the world, you may see your tribe as at the very least blessed and better off, but you don't see yourself as superior to them because you understand that you needed salvation just as much as they do you understand that the God that created you also created them. And you have a theology that teaches you that the kind of person that is going to be saved, that is allowed to have fellowship with his God eternally, is one that treats his brother the way that he wants to be treated. That treats his brother the way that he would treat Christ. That he sees his Savior in everyone. He sees everyone as an image bearer of an almighty creator. You don't start with that, you can't even get off the ground. And I think that we need to understand that especially in the light of what we have so recently seen, especially in the light of what we have just witnessed and telling people from on high in pillars of power as a government, you're not allowed to go to church. Church is a non-essential function. Did we really expect anything else? If a society is comfortable in telling its citizens that church really doesn't matter and you don't really have to do it, and by the way, we can just kind of take that away from you anytime we want to, to a society that is so incredibly flippant about that, is it really any surprise that it could birth a movement as violent and evil as this one? Because I don't think so. I mean, heck, even very good and, and godly nations occasionally spur something like this. When we have reached that level of depravity, it comes as no surprise to me. When we have so forsaken God that we can write it off as literally non-essential that we go and worship him, then I genuinely can't think of, of any different outcome. When you start with that, what, what Bernice King was just talking about, the reason that her father's movement was different is because everybody had to sign a non-aggression pledge. And part of that pledge 
was to read the scriptures daily, reflect on them. Another part of that pledge was to remember that we were seeking reconciliation and not vengeance. That's a message that is rooted in Scripture. Treating everybody equally, the call to equality, is something that really only makes sense if you believe in a single universal God. It doesn't make sense any other way. Why shouldn't one tribe take advantage of another? Unless you have a people that are rooted in that fundamental truth, equality is impossible. Reconciliation is impossible. Bloody tribal wars are the only result of such a people. And if we do want to get to exactly what she was talking about, nonviolence is the only approach that can be taken to reach that goal. You can't get to peace and nonviolence through violence. It just doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. There is a peace that can sometimes be found only on the other side of war. But within a nation, within a movement, you can't get there through violent means. It doesn't work that way. All it does is breed more fear and resentment, which eventually leads to more violence. And so, what she's saying is, is 100% correct. You can only... What we have seen transpire over the past week is the natural, logical conclusion to a godless society. And I'm ashamed to say that here in America, we are quickly moving towards that. Granted, this time, it was relatively small compared to the whole. But unless we start believing that all lives matter, that every single life is precious to God, and it is precious specifically because it was God that made it and created it in His image, we're simply not going to be able to get to a place where peace exists. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.